Welcome to DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by our friends at 26 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industry. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions to elevate the overall understanding, strategic direction, and tactical implementation of impactful campaigns. You can learn more at 26Digital, all letters, no numbers, 26Digital.com. And now it's on to our show. Our guest today is Shelly Green. Shelly is the immediate past president and CEO of Discover Durham, where she worked for nearly two decades prior to retiring in September of 2019 as part of a carefully executed succession plan. Shelly now works as a consultant to DMOs, and she conducts research, provides guidance on governance, policy development, and strategic issues. In her 30-plus year career of destination marketing and management, Shelly held a variety of leadership positions, including chair of DMAP, the Destination Marketing Accreditation Program, President of Destination Marketing Association of North Carolina, and a board member of Destinations International. She also serves as a guest speaker or panelist at numerous state and national meetings, in addition to participating as a guest lecturer at multiple universities. Before joining Discover Durham, Shelley led the Asheville Convention and Visitors Bureau, now known as Explore Asheville, and she was the founding executive director of the Chapel Hill Orange County Visitors Bureau, now Visit Chapel Hill, and she earned a bachelor's and master's degree in music from the University of Miami. Shelley Green, welcome to DMOU. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. You know, congratulations on a great run. All of your work on our behalf with Destinations International and DMAP, and also congratulations on launching your own consultancy. We always find it fascinating when someone that has the longevity that you do decides to complete their CDME in the final year of their tenure. But that's exactly <laughs> what you did. And so congratulations on that too. But that's what we wanted to, to dig into is some of the issues that you bridge in your CDME paper on ethics. So, you know, back 15 some years ago in the original DMOU teleseminar series, we interviewed Atlanta's Spurgeon Richardson, who had made it his hallmark during his year as chair in what is now known as Destinations International, that ethics was going to be his thing. Now, since then, ethics has really not had the spotlight that it did during his term. And I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's because it's not sexy, but it is so critically important to everything that we do and what we stand for in destination marketing. So we're elated that you have resurrected the conversation. So let's get to your first question. Since Spurgeon's term, we have seen several instances where DMOs have had to deal with fraud, embezzlement, ethical issues. We tend to attribute ethical violations to bad character, like crooks and criminals who intentionally deceive people and make calculated risks to break the rules and violate our values. But from your perspective, you don't see it that way. From your perspective, what's going on? Well, there certainly are some examples of what I would call bad apples. Right. People who, you know, knew what they were doing and they were deceitful. Uh, sometimes they thought they could get away with it temporarily, borrow a little bit of money and then replace it. Didn't work out real well. But what I was fascinated to study was a phenomenon that is called ethical blindness. 
And essentially, that's what happens when people deviate from their own values. And it's really because of the context that they find themselves in. So if a whole organization seems to go off the rails and multiple people are, are doing things, that's uh, probably what's going on. It e explains, too, why some people would say after a scandal comes to light, wow, Johnny's the last person I ever would have suspected of doing something <laughs> like that. Yeah, right. So ethical blindness happens unconsciously. It's intuitive. It happens over time. And one of the biggest reasons is fear. You're afraid of consequences if you don't book uh, 30,000 room nights, or you're afraid of uh, other kinds of consequences. But it, it also shows up uh, under incompetence uh, when you're under an incredible intense time pressure, uh, when you have a lot of complexity to deal with. So there's a lot of reasons that this ethical blindness can come to pass. And most of the time, these folks had pretty good intentions, strong values, but something was going on. There were some unethical things going on in their organization, and they just kind of rode that bandwagon, and they began to do that too. It's an interesting phenomena that, that's out there. It's not all just bad character or bad apples. Yeah, there was the incident a number of years ago, shortly after the BP oil spill, where a DMO, just to your point, you know, Johnny would never do that, right? right? He was relatively new in his DMO position on the coast and was caught, bought a yacht, bought a boat, bought a car. Yep. You know, bought a, a house. A a $750,000 house. <laughs> yeah, right. And everybody from his previous bureau in California were absolutely stunned. They said, that is not the person we knew. And when it all kind of came out, we realized what had happened is that his ethical blindness started when boatloads of BP money came in and there were no controls. Right. It wasn't the money that he was entrusted with from the county. He nailed the accounting on that thing, and he didn't spend any of that money nefariously. But he did with, with the BP money. And so almost that, right. that you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's like all of a sudden, just the presence of non-controlled money just triggers something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that the ethical blindness could start at the top. But if staff sees that ethical blindness, what happens then? Um if staff sees the ethical blindness, and again, it's, if it's fear that's involved, sometimes there's been incidents where somebody, maybe a, a sales coordinator or a sales manager might say something to the director of sales, doesn't get anywhere, says something to the CEO, uh, look, we're, we're putting in bookings that aren't legitimate. You need to stop and listen to this and take a look at it. If the person that is higher on the food chain blows that off, then essentially they've given tacit agreement that this is okay behavior and that the bookings were more important than the ethics. Now, sooner or later, people usually get caught. I'm sure there's people out there that got away with it and didn't get caught, but the higher up you are in the organization, if you're the CEO, you're folks are watching you 
to see that you not only talk the talk, but that you walk the walk. And if you don't, then they're going to do similar kinds of things. So it's it's even more important as you get further and further uh, up the ladder in the organization that you have ethical behavior and that you allow and encourage people to ask questions. If they see something that doesn't sound right, then that they're empowered to ask that person about it. Like, did I just see you put, you know, a box or two of copy paper in your car? You know, it could be something as small as that, or it could be something really big. So it's important that the leadership of the organization is paying attention to this kind of thing. So the fiscal malfeasance issues are just the most reported issues. Uh, That's what makes the newspaper. That's what makes the media. But you've also uncovered other ethical issues, such as the awarding of contracts or maybe playing fast and loose with diversity, equity, inclusion, What should DMO pros be on the lookout for in these non-fiscal situations? Oh, I can give you a lot of examples of of these. (laughs) So there was one, for example, a board authorized a no-bid contract to one of its own board members to do work for the organization. And in this particular situation, the board member owned a publishing company and the CEO signed a three-year agreement without going through any kind of bidding process so that this board member's company would produce that DMO's visitor's guide for three years. They would sell the ads and they would keep the revenue and, and in turn publish the guide. Well, no good deed goes unpunished. It's entirely possible there was no financial gain to be had This person was probably doing it as a favor. The guide might have lost money and was just hoping to break even on it. But there's a clear conflict of interest here, which is why so many organizations have conflict of interest policies. But it looks bad and it smells bad. And in this particular organization, it happened about a year after that DMO's former bookkeeper was caught embezzling more than $50,000. So you would have thought they would have been, you know, a little bit more attuned to that. Mm. Um, so, you know, doing something with a board member is fraught with possibilities for unethical behavior. So that would be one area that you'd want to pay attention to. Another would be the CEO or somebody in the organization hiring a family member of a board member. Again, might be the most qualified person, but there needs to be some disclosures there and understand what's happening and how that search was conducted. There was a great example that I did quite a bit of digging into as I wrote my paper about an employee making purchases from a company that she owned. So the company was originally owned by the live-in partner partner dies and the employee is gifted the company. And this company sold tchotchkes of different kinds. And when we buy from a tchotchke company, basically what happens is if the item costs a dollar, you know, they sell it to us for two. So this employee was not only buying from herself, she was marking it up like a retailer would. (laughs) And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars here. So, you know, there's, there's something to be said for 
having policies in place that when you bring on a new vendor, that, you know, some of this is vetted to make sure that there is no conflict of interest. One more example, and this is real subtle, going on junkets that involve traveling sometimes to an overseas destination as part of a sales mission or a trade show, Mm -hmm. but it's based on how exciting that destination is as opposed to whether or not you have a coherent strategy and any hope of attracting any business from there. So, you know, if I'm a small rural destination in North Carolina, you know, it may not make sense for me to go to China and have a big trade mission or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure you you met with uh, media or you met with tour operators, but, you know, really was that part of your strategy? Um, is that really ethical? So there, there's a lot of different things in here that that don't necessarily have anything to do about money. It's just making decisions. And uh, you wrote this in your book, but we said it around the office decades. You know, how would this look on the front page of the newspaper if if this came out? And that's one of the standards that that people put this to. Yeah. You know, one of my recollections of one of those that started with the best intentions was a fairly midsize bureau. I mean, with means, a board member was a restaurateur in town. And she said, hey, we always do our meetings over lunch. And you guys are spending an awful lot of money getting it catered. Let us cater it. And like on 30 cents on the dollar. I mean, it was, it was, she probably was losing money on catering the meal, but she wanted to help. Mm-hmm. No one ever expected, nor did she, that she would one day become chair. Well, here she is as chair and catering, you know, the meals still. Right. And of course, the newspaper catches up with it and says, hey, you guys never bid this out. There's lots of restaurants who would love to cater your board meetings. It started out with the best of intentions. And Absolutely. it blew up in their face. Yeah. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So question number three, somebody accuses the DMO of unethical behavior. We've seen situations that could have been mitigated easily, but they blow up badly. So what are your recommendations for how DMOs should respond when they're in the community's crosshairs? Well, I want to tell you about someone that I learned about probably 15 years ago, a guy by the name of Peter Sandman, and he writes about the outrage industries. Um, Mostly he's writing for corporate risk managers, but generally what happens when something like this blows up, um, there's outrage. There's outrage by the people in our community. There's outrage by uh, the media. Um, there's There's just a lot of outrage. And he calls what I'm going to call our residents. He calls them activists. And they deploy outrage because it brings attention to an issue that they think is important. And then media does because it helps them sell more papers or get more eyeballs on on the evening news. But a really important premise that he taught is that media or activists or residents that get outraged, they're not creating the outrage. They're just amplifying it. So when controversy erupts, they jump on the bandwagon, they, they put a lot of energy behind this controversy. 
And our role as a DMO executive is not to be in the outrage business. We're in the calm down business. So the worst thing that you can do when something comes to light that is unfavorable is to try and shut everybody down. Yeah. Because you encourage more negative conversations and you kind of keep that outrage alive. So I guess what I would recommend is, you know, you don't accuse those people that are speaking poorly of you as being biased or wrong or stupid or misguided or, or whatever. And that's where I've seen so many problems in the DMO world. They try to discredit the outraged who are asking questions. Our job as DMOs is to show that you know they are probably partly right and that you're taking this issue seriously. So some of the things that I've learned from him and from my own experience is, you know, you, you own it. You don't say, well, everybody does this. This is how our business operates. You, you say, you know, I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that. And then you got to do it. And you got to come back in a reasonable amount of time and say what you found and just own that there's probably some small part of validity to that. And then you tell them how you're going to fix it. And then you tell them how it's never going to happen again. And I think what we all do when we feel like we're being attacked unfairly is we, we just punch back. And that to me is probably the worst thing you can do in that situation. Well, and we've got that great example from, geez, probably two decades ago, where a major market CEO got caught that some of his salespeople were expensing trips with clients to strip clubs. Oh, yes. And now remember, this is 20-some years ago, but the worst thing in the world was that he said, but everybody does that in sales. Right. <laughs> that's not a good enough excuse. That's, that's, that's not the right answer. And things went badly. And I mean, we, we all shook our heads and went, we, we know what he's saying, but the policy probably should be, you can take your client there if you want, but you can't expense it. Just like many of us have those kinds of, of rules for alcohol, right? Right. You shouldn't expense it to public dollars. If you have private dollars that are handled separately, that would be one way to do it. But I got to tell you, when I did my survey about some of these practices, a lot of people answered the survey about, well, we just trust our employees to use good judgment. And some even say, well, our policy says this, but we don't really follow that. And so, you know, you were asking what can folks do? Another thing that they can do is take a look at your operating policies. If you haven't updated them for the last decade or so, it's probably time to do that. And only about half of the people that I surveyed even had a code of ethics. I recommend that people have a code of ethics and a code of conduct. They're not really the same thing, but they won't prevent you from ever having an issue, but you're going to set the standard for what you expect. And you're also probably going to discover the behavior or what went wrong much faster. So, you know, have a code of ethics, have a code of contact, do training, 
Don't just train people on their first day of the job and expect they're going to remember that two, three, eight, 25 years later. Or even do a survey to get a benchmark of kind of where you are right now on ethics. You know, you make a great point about having the code of ethics. And if you haven't updated it in the past 10 years, or even in the past five, I think this moment in time, as diversity, equity, and inclusion is becoming very front and center for us, we probably need, all of us, need to go back in, if we haven't in the past three or four months, and review those policies to make sure that we aren't inadvertently blocking members of our community from bidding on projects or being involved in certain things, you know, whether they're members or not members, but just you know, whole sections of our community that have never been exposed to what a destination marketing organization does or can do for them may be inadvertently being excluded through those policies. So this is a perfect time for all of us to go back in and make sure, yeah. not just for that issue, but that should be the issue that causes us to go back in. And while we're there, then make sure that, you know, some of these things that maybe we're taking for granted that that's just the way we do it 10, 15, 20 years ago, isn't acceptable today. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because I have actually been accused of being unethical because I wouldn't let a more junior staff member hire the person that that individual manager wanted to hire. Because, you know, in a community like Durham, for most of my tenure, we did not have an ethnic majority at all in our community. It was also a very highly accepting community with a big LGBTQ population. So our credibility in the community was based on, you know, having a team that had men and women and blacks and whites and Latinx and gays and straights and, you know, younger or more inexperienced managers, I found, put all of the weight on well, you have to have one year of this and two years of that and couldn't see the bigger picture of, no, one of our core values was to have a diverse staff that looked like our community and that we would get a lot of benefit of diversity of thought and background and ideas. And we always did uh, group interviews for that very reason, because there, there's more than just having the education and, you know, the, the former job on your resume that's going to make the, the best team member for our organization. I want to double back to the being in the community crosshairs uh, scenario. And, and you said, you know, sometimes our, our base response is to punch back, which is never a good thing to do. Yes. But it's human nature and, and we feel wronged and we, we want to defend ourselves. Who should be in front of the media, in front of the critics? Should it be the CEO or should it be the board chair or board spokesperson in your mind? Ideally, it would be your board chair. But realistically, not every board chair is equipped to do that. And they're just not comfortable mm -hmm. doing that. And sometimes the CEO has a lot of uh, media experience. And if they can get out of their head for a minute and feeling wrongly accused, they, they do know how to conduct that interview a little better. But having the board chair do it puts it in a totally different light. And, and that's why I think that's the, the best way to handle it, because the board chair 
is ultimately responsible. That's who the CEO is going to report to the board and can can put some context around it. And, and frankly, sometimes the CEO needs that cover. Sometimes everybody wants your head on a platter and they're ready to, you know, fire you. And the board chair can can bring some sanity to that that just says, hey, we're taking this very seriously. We're looking into it. We're going to do X, Y, and Z, and then we're going to get back to you and, you know, tell you what we found and how we're going to deal with it. But not every board chair has that skill set. Yeah. So it really is on a case-by-case basis. I I look back to uh, the situation, and he was just a guest uh, a month or so ago here on DMOU. Uh, We talked to Dave Nolan who used to be mm-hmm. the CEO of what is now Destination Cleveland. Yes. And he took a full frontal from the media, both the plane dealer and Fox 8 came after him with a vengeance. And he takes the blame. And okay, some of it could be him. I looked at a moment in time as I watched from afar where his board chair, the fir- his first reaction was to put Dave on paid leave. Uh. And, and that just signaled to everybody that they were onto something. What he should have done is said, okay, we are going to order an internal review, audit, whatever. Investigation. A 30-day, 30, 30 you know, we are going to get to the bottom of this in 30 days, and we will come back to you and report. And if we find any wrongdoing, we will take the appropriate actions. But let me tell you, this guy has rocked this destination, broken records for seven years straight, and we're going to send him back to work doing the thing he does best, which is promote Cleveland. And when that audit was finished 30 days later, turned out there wasn't a single finding. Everything that Dave had done and that the Bureau had done had been signed off by the board. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they lost a very accomplished CEO because he never recovered from that. Right. Because they put him on paid leave. You know, and it's a knee-jerk reaction. And, you know, hell, I could see how somebody could do that. But that was the end, really, of Dave's DMO career. I mean, he worked a couple other DMOs, but I mean, he was on top of the world uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. So that's why I kind of like to see the board chair out there. But I think you make a great point that some board chairs or board spokespeople are not equipped to be in the line of fire, especially as as angry as some of those uh, reporters and critics can be. Yes, I totally agree with okay. you. What have we missed that uh, we could also find in your paper if we ever got our hands on it? I think another piece of this is that the board has to be involved in these discussions on the ethics policy or a code of conduct, even your uh, travel and entertainment policies. It can't be board hands off because when stuff hits the fan, as you just said, the board has to understand what their role is and, you know, what the policies are and, you know, how all of this is going to play in the community when things go wrong. So I'm probably guilty of this more than anyone is when, when I was the CEO, you know, the board just kind of let me run things, you know, where's my Gave agenda? Gave you the keys to the camper, right? <laughs> they did, <laughs> you know, where, where, where's my agenda? Okay. You know, 10 minutes before anything I need to know that's special. And I'm so lucky, knock on wood in, in 30 years, I've certainly seen, and I've had ethical issues under my watch with some of the employees that I've hired, but I've never had anyone go after me. 
if somebody had, then I was really going to be at a disadvantage that that board wasn't as involved in understanding, you know, policies and all of those things. Yeah, that is the balancing act, isn't it? Because you, you love the fact that they trust you to death and that you could go out there and do almost anything because that really makes our jobs easy. But at that moment in time, when things turn, they're not prepared. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, reminding us of the ethical issues. Um, you know, the late Spurgeon was, uh, he was a, a mad dog about this stuff. And and I think we, we need to continue to have these conversations as we go forward. But it's time for your bonus round question. Okay. Yeah. In your introductory bio, we clicked through all of your DMO credentials, which are substantial, but there was the obligatory where you went to school part that indicate that you have a bachelor and a master's degree in music. Yes. Many have seen you as a backing singer <laughs> in the Destinations International House Band, but you have toured the world singing in venues like Carnegie Hall and the Sydney Opera House. Tell us that side of Shelley Green. Well, as you said, I, I went to the University of Miami. I wanted to be a teacher from, you know, when I was like four years old, we, we played teacher and I always got to be the teacher and I'd make all the neighborhood kids sit down and mind <laughs> me and all that stuff. And as I got into high school, I was really into music. And by my senior year, we had six classes and four of mine were music. I was in a huge, huge uh, high school with lots of programs like that. So I got a scholarship to go to the University of Miami and I was fortunate enough to make it into the the touring group called University of Miami Singers. And we we traveled literally all over the world. Uh, I've been to Russia, I've been to Korea, Poland, Czechoslovakia, um, you name it. And uh, we were friendship ambassadors. So we, we sang some some great concert venues. And I, I loved those years and, and did it both as an undergraduate. Then I went and taught school for two years. And then I came back as a graduate student and did it for a couple more years. But eventually I had to make a living and I figured out something really unfortunate, which was I hated teaching. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, no, I, let me, let me correct my own self. Um, I didn't hate teaching. I, I hated some of the administrators that I worked for. Yeah. And I, I can tell you some horror stories of that. And when I went back for my uh, master's degree, I said, I'm going to come out of this and I'm going to be uh, an administrator. And I did. I worked at International Fine Arts College for three years, worked my way up to vice president. It was a tiny little college. But then I was married at the time and my husband got a job in North Carolina and I was a trailing spouse and I moved in October. Well, you can't get any kind of teaching or administrative yeah, job right. in October. So uh, there was an ad for Winston-Salem Convention and Visitors Bureau for a convention services manager and I was the manager of those touring choirs for a couple of years and I booked conventions on Miami beach. And, you know, I thought I could do this. This is, yeah. this is a piece of cake for me. <laughs> and so I, I got into the DMO world several decades ago and I just never looked back. I loved marketing. I loved what we do. I, I love helping our communities and I, I, I just never went back into music or teaching. 
Well, and we're glad that you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Shelly, thanks again for all you've done and continue to do for the DMO sector. We look forward to the opportunity to work with you at some point in the future as fellow consultants on a project. That'd be fun. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. And all the best to you and Ren. Thank you so much. You bet. That's it for this edition of the Resurrected DMOU. Tell your friends and peers that we are back and looking forward to sharing, as we said on the original website, innovative ways to tell people where to go. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, 2.6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to the DMO and hospitality world. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 2.6 team will assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies. You can find them at 2.6digital.com. DMOPros.com is where you'll find more on our services to the DMO sector, plus links to the Z News, our Knowledge Bank videos, blogs, as well as links to the earlier episodes of this podcast and the biggest DMO job board on the planet. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.